...capital that was early colonial Virginia, a fiasco that left overly hasty and optimistic colonists dying in Jamestown mud. It was that experience that caused Smith to quickly disabuse readers of any belief that New England offered quick riches and easy sources of profit, such as gold or silver. Smith insisted instead that the most profitable aspect of the New England lay in its ocean. The main staple, he predicted, is fish, which, however it may seem, a mean and a base commodity. Yet who will but truly take the pains and consider the sequel, I think will allow it well worth the labor. For those who doubted him, he gave the example of the stalwart Dutch who fished, Smith noted with admiration, at a great charge and labor in all weathers in the open sea. These hardy fishers then sold their catch to members of the Hanseatic League, receiving in turn products like lumber and tar and rosin, which Dutch merchants then sold to the French, English, Spanish, and Portuguese empires, which needed to build more ships. In the process, the Dutch became so mighty, strong, and rich as no state but Venice. But the real wonder to Smith was that they achieved this great wealth and power as mere middlemen. He marveled that it could be fairly asked of the Dutch, what voyages and discoveries east and west, north and south, yea, about the world make they? None was the answer, nor had the Dutch an army. And still, never could the Spaniard, with all his mines of gold and silver, pay his debts his friends and army half so truly as the Hollanders still have done by this contemptible trade of fish. The sea, Smith argued, served as a Dutch mine. New England had plenty of fish to net, too. The problem, as Smith pointed out, was that contemptible cod had no glamour and it failed to entice many of the people most inclined to risk their lives on colonial ventures 3,000 miles from home. That demographic, young single men, seemed more apt to prefer to seek the glorious sort of immediate wealth that too often proved chimerical to devastating results as had happened before Smith's eyes in Jamestown. There, far too many of the early arrivals had been gentlemen well-dressed but ill-suited to the kind of labor required to create a new colony. Their gentility proved their downfall. Unwilling to till the earth and plant the crops, they starved and died. Letters sent back to England were filled with scenes of absolute horror, detailing lives of fighting and starving. One young man wrote to his parents in England, "'And I have nothing to comfort me,' nor there is nothing to be gotten here but sickness and death. Roughly 6,000 English colonists went to Virginia in the first two decades of colonization. Only 1,200 were living there at the end of that period. John Smith had little patience with lazy gentlemen looking for easy profits. More are choked than well-fed, he noted caustically, with such hasty hopes. As a result, First on his list for success in New England was stamping out the notion of immediate wealth, of quick riches. Hence his insistence that colonists in New England follow the Dutch example. They would be the suppliers of those empires fortunate enough to have mines and metals and cash crops. 
They might become rich by association, literally, but that wealth would come from prosaic labor, fishing and farming and loading and selling and shipping. England was not yet a nation of shopkeepers, but John Smith presciently suggested at least some of its colonies might be. Even the name New England had both grandeur and earthiness. The adjectival portion pointed to lofty ambitions, but the noun was rooted in intimately familiar, if not quotidian, kinds of lives. England was, to Smith's readers, a known land of known things, of farmers and miners and fishers and sawyers and coopers and hunters and good wives and tailors and cooks. In the rich soil of such grounded mundanity, he promised, would grow the seeds of success. But what he failed